I remember when we hired like our first kind of like more senior employee and the first person who had kids like me, it was really difficult for me emotionally because I just felt so much responsibility. But I think that's good. I think it's good to have that pressure because I think more business leaders need to understand that they're responsible for people's livelihoods. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. It's Danielle. Today, our guest is Nell Diamond. She is the founder and CEO of the cult favorite brand, Hill House Home. If you haven't heard of it, I'm kind of surprised. Honestly, Hill House is the digital first lifestyle brand that sells clothing, bedding and accessories. Nell founded the company in 2016, and it's most famous for the nap dress, which at one point sold over a million dollars in inventory in 12 minutes. That's insane. I own several. Hill House closed its most recent funding round last year and raised over $20 million at a $150 million valuation. Nell, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you. I'm so happy and honored to be here. Thanks for being here with us today. So we like to do a little warm up before we get into the conversation. So we're going to do a lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Yes, ready. First job you got paid for? Working at Abercrombie & Fitch in London. Why don't you have an accent? <laughs> it's such a good question. And it's not a lightning answer, but I would okay, say we'll get probably there. my parents are American. My parents are American. Okay. What languages do you speak? English. And then I took like AP French, like AP French literature and AP French language, which means that I like don't speak it at all anymore, but you know, can understand some of it. <laughs> what? Um, oh, this is a good. Have you ever actually napped in your nap dress? Oh yeah. All the time. All the time. I have as well. They're very comfortable for that. What's one thing we can't Google about you? Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm such an oversharer. Like literally every like tiny detail about me is, is Googleable. I would say one thing that you can't Google about me is maybe, maybe that I'm an, this is such a random thing. I was just thinking of a fun fact, maybe that I'm an IVF baby, but I do, I have talked about that, but I just feel like it's not on Google. Is that something because of like our age that is rare? Very rare. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not very rare. I'm sure you know plenty of people, but it was my fun fact when I was little because my older brother was like one of the first ever (laughs) IVF babies. That is a good fun fact. Interesting fact. Do you ever tan? Absolutely not. Never, never. What's a clothing trend you wish would go away? I wish people would dress up more for airports. I don't think this is a trend, but it's like a general life philosophy I have, which is that like when you go to airports, like that's when you see the most people. So it's like your best opportunity to look fabulous. So (laughs) I wish more people dressed up at airports, but that's also probably the thing that most people like make fun of me for is how dressed up I get at airports. So what is your airport uniform? Well, always some Hill House dress of some sort, but I've been known to wear like my true like biggest heels at airports, which sometimes is because they look cute, but also because I'm a carry-on girl and heels take up a lot of space in in your carry-on. So sometimes it's just most efficient. Like in theory, I get it. But walking at the airport in those shoes, how do you do it? 
I have no problem. I have a harder time walking in like flat shoes than I do in heels. I have like Barbie feet, you know, like they're like pointed. Who would you want to have at a dinner party, living or dead? Zadie Smith, my favorite author. That would be a good one. Are there any fashion rules you follow? Like hard rules? No hard rules. I will get like obsessed by something for a while and then get over it. But no, I don't have any fashion rules that I hold to. Favorite Hill House item? Probably the Ophelia dress is really close to my heart. That'll always be a long time one. It took a lot of work and I really love it. My fun fact is my toddler sleeps with a Hill House pillow. And it was from a line, I think a collaboration you did with like Thrive years ago. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. And it's like sleep your way to the top or something. Yeah. And he kind of like took it and it's his favorite thing to sleep with. That's so funny. Yeah, that was Ariana Huffington's phrase. So we did it for her. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump into it. I want to go back to the beginning, meaning what was your relationship like with fashion growing up. I've read that you thought you couldn't necessarily pursue fashion as a career or it was more of a hobby or an interest. Why was that? Yeah, I I've always loved fashion. I've always been very very set in my ways about how I dress. When I was little, we moved around a lot, which is probably also a reason I don't have a British accent, but we when we were living in Japan when I was probably the same age as my son who's 6 right now, I was obsessed with wearing the clothing from my life-size Barbie and like the shoes that came with her too. And that was very important to me. And I really like felt emotional about the clothing that I wore and that never went away. So I've always loved it. It's been such a creative outlet for me. But I think for some reason, I mean, I think the reason is probably like a lot of the internalized misogyny around how we think about like women's interests of which fashion is one. It didn't occur to me that it could be a career path for me. And that was because I was this very like studious, quantitative person at school. And I just didn't really see fashion as an option until I started getting older and started learning a little bit more about the industry and realized the kind of intense misogyny that kind of got me to that place. So yeah. I want to take a trip back to your first paid job working at Amber Crombie, which I feel like retail is hard no matter what. And when I think back to like those greeters there, they were working it. What did you learn from that first experience in fashion, albeit one that is, you know, obviously very different from what you're doing today? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would have loved to be a greeter. Unfortunately, I was a folder and I was hoping to work my way up to greeter. I think I had visions of being a greeter and there was a lot more basement time than I had kind of expected. But I have tremendous amount of respect for Abercrombie and I still do. Actually, they've been going through like an incredible resurgence recently. They make beautiful product right now. But I always, it was one of my favorite brands. I didn't work there randomly. I was obsessed with what they were doing. And, you know, growing up internationally, we would come to New York because my parents were American. And like, I would go to Abercrombie in the Seaport District in New York, that old Abercrombie that they had there. And I was like, I like needed to be quiet while I was there. I was like, I need like my 45 minutes. I need to like look around. I need to understand it. And it wasn't just one brand, right? Like I wasn't just obsessed with Abercrombie. I was also obsessed with Topshop, which was like the big London brand at that time. Gap, I went through a huge phase with Gap too. But I loved 
understanding like these brand languages and how they represented themselves. So I was so excited when I got that job. It was just like the coolest thing to me. You know, the things that you've named, and obviously this is going way back in the day, but it is an interesting group of real brands that stick out. Especially, I think everyone was obsessed with Abercrombie in that moment in time and Gap. And also what your style is today when you see it on your Instagram, which is you take your own products and then there's such a mix of pairing it with couture or high designer and then different, whether it's, I've seen J. Crew on there. How did you begin that fashion journey on your own? Not necessarily the business part, but just as a part of your identity. Yeah. I mean, I think J. Crew is another brand that I think I just like had a huge obsession with and just loved so much, loved everything they did and how they spoke about themselves. I think, you know, for me as a founder and being like kind of a visible founder of the brand, it was always really important to me that I wasn't like represented as the ideal way that you're supposed to look in Hill House, particularly as like, you know, a very privileged white woman. Like I did not want to be like heralded as the like you know, icon of how you're supposed to look in this product. So from the beginning, it was important to me that we showcase the product on a lot of different people, a lot of different body sizes, a lot of different backgrounds, all of those things. And also a lot of different like aesthetics, which was super important to me. And I know that my aesthetic tends to be incredibly feminine, very overdressed. And that's not for everyone, but it is how I like to dress. And I found like the one thing that's been so consistent in the past like eight years of building this business is that anytime I veer away from something that feels like true to who I am, it starts getting really hard. And so I've enjoyed having like the outlet of my personal Instagram to showcase how I style the product. And then the brand Instagram being kind of distinct from that and showcasing a really wide range of all the different ways you can style it, regardless of price point or aesthetic or body size or any other thing. We're going to come back to the Instagram, but I want to go back to the initial idea for Hill House. When did it come to you? Where was that on kind of like the school journey you were on and how did the two kind of converge? Yeah. So I I worked in finance right after undergrad. I did the kind of like two-year analyst program in banking for many reasons, including that it seemed like it was like what everyone was doing. And when I got the offer for a full-time job after my internship, it felt crazy to turn it down. But I kind of knew pretty early on that this wasn't going to be my long-term career. I'm what many people would call like incredibly dramatic. And I found it really difficult to go into work every day and work on things that I didn't feel super excited by. I also found like general kind of environment difficult and and I was embarrassed about it, right? Like I was so upset about that dress code. I was so upset about it. And I was embarrassed by the fact that I was upset about it because of how much we've internalized this idea that like these things that we might care about, like for me, my eyeliner or like the color I'm painting my nails aren't serious things and we shouldn't care about them. But the truth was, and I couldn't shake it, the fact that I like couldn't do my cat eye walking into the trading floor at 6 a.m. made me feel like I was wearing a costume and it made me feel like not myself and it affected my mental health and it affected like how I showed up every day at work. So there were quite a few things I think about that environment that I didn't love, but I wanted to see it through, right? And there were things I did love too. I think it was an incredible opportunity to learn how to be an employee. I always say it was like employee boot camp. And many of these banks have like incredible training programs. I loved a lot of the people I worked with. And I think there were parts of it that definitely like, ignited something in me for Hill House, including the fact that I would spend some time reading like equity research reports on these big retail companies and uncover 
just how much there was to dig into there, right? Like understanding just how much of the economy is powered by retail and powered by consumer spending that's largely done by women. And I remember reading like, you know, some of the big, huge publicly traded like retail giants earnings reports and being like, gosh, I'd love to know more about that. And so I applied to business school with like this early idea that I wanted to kind of be in retail and consumer facing businesses a little bit more. And then somewhere in that time, I came up with this idea for Hill House and I wanted it to be a lifestyle brand, but I think my first product focus was around home. And that was because I knew how much our environments kind of affect how we go about our day-to-day life. And in particular, I've always found that kind of like going to sleep and waking up in a room that feels good to me, true to me, helps me get through the day in a, in a much better way. So I wanted to help people figure out what their sense of style was as it related to home and create these like cozy nests in their bedrooms. And so we did that with bedding and pillows and all sorts of kind of soft goods around home. So while I was at Yale Business School, I was in the startup incubator and I incubated the business. So I spent kind of class time working with a bunch of other students, some of whom were working on incredible, incredible ventures, like a safer way to transport organs between hospitals for transplants. And it was just incredibly humbling, but also like amazing to be like, you know, struggling with some of the same things as the people doing that while I'm like talking about, you know, my frilly pillow. So it was really fun. But it's, it's interesting with that coming back to the idea that like, you know, you've built an incredible brand and even talking about like a frilly pillow that so many people have just gone crazy for your aesthetic and the way that you deliver to your customers. When on this journey, do you feel like you felt like you were really building a business in the way that fashion is a serious part of this economy? Yeah, I think some of the insecurities, I don't know if they'll ever go away, right? Like, and I think that's part of like the craziness of entrepreneurship and the craziness of also just like being a woman in the world. Like, you know, I make jokes that like diminish it. Even the frilly joke that I just make, like that's diminishing the seriousness of what we do. There become more data points to to stand up against those like big doubts that creep in. But I think one of the most surprising things about building a business is that no matter how many data points we get of, you know, this is a real business creating real product that like people really enjoy and love and value, the like tenuousness of the whole thing and the insecurities and emotions like are still always there, at least in my experience, that could just be something I have to work out with my therapist still. (laughs) So you build Hill House, starts with bedding, and then talk to me about COVID and the pandemic and the nap dress? So I always said when I started the brand that we would have, you know, we started as a direct consumer brand, digitally native, but I would have started Hell House 20 years ago before, you know, the internet became this like massive superpower for selling. Because at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was build a brand and build a suite of hero products that people loved and that brought real joy and real happiness to people's lives and that made them feel amazing. And I would have done that in whatever way worked at the time, right? I would have done it on the department store floor. I would have done it at a trade show. I would have done it anyway. So the fact that it happened at a time when it was incredibly easy to log on to Shopify and set up an amazing site that works really well and partner with a third-party logistics warehouse and all of those things is really just a factor of the time. And so because of that, I spent the first three or four years really focused on product and focused on exactly what was making customers feel great. And I didn't want to guess that too much. I wanted to create plenty of options for customers to tell me what they were liking, but I didn't want to be too 
business schooly and like set it all up in an Excel and like let it fly. And then that was it. I wanted to kind of watch again, some people might call it extreme nosiness, but I'm a little bit of a stalker <laughs> and I wanted to know how people were living with our product. And that was really how the nap dress itself came to be in the fashion side of our business came to be. So we would put out products all the time that felt a little you know, to like a blind eye might've felt like, why is this bedding company like suddenly making this random product? But for me, it was really research and seeing what people wanted. So with the nap dress in 2019, I had had a baby and I was really looking for a piece of clothing that I felt comfortable enough in, like, you know, doing the morning rush with my son, getting to work, having all my meetings, maybe going out to like a press dinner or something and then getting home. And I didn't feel like super uncomfortable. I also wanted to be able to like sit at my desk and have lunch and not have to like unzip the back of my dress. And I've always just loved this kind of aesthetic of like these almost like Victorian ghosty nightgowns. So we toyed around with a couple of them. We spent some time on them and I just became obsessed, but I was still at no point being like, this is going to be the future of the brand. And like, everybody's going to love this. There were so many things we were releasing that, I mean, at one point we released um, bath salts, like no joke. We had bath salts at one point, like we, oh, we tried everything. And so with the nap dress, I was kind of like, this could be like, you know, something that no one ever wears except for like me and my mom. But we put it out into our Bleecker Street store. And very early on in 2019, it was clear that this was a product that people just were obsessed with. And, you know, we've like rehashed the reasons why so many times, but I think at the end of the day, it's a really, really wonderful, wonderful, comfortable product that makes people feel great at a great price point. And that's like the big secret to it all. So 2019, start selling out. We like start doing drops accidentally. Basically, we weren't trying to sell out of anything, but we kind of had to release them exactly at a specific time and a specific day. Otherwise, people would be getting mad at us like they'd put it in their calendar. And then COVID happened. And I thought I was going to have to shut down the business. I thought that was going to be it. I thought we were going to have to totally give up everything we had worked for. And then the opposite happened. We had three years of 300% year over year growth every single year. It was like, you know, literally like being on the craziest ride that we're, you know, still on right now of growth and going from, you know, four people in my basement to, you know, 40 people (laughs) and international sales and all of these things. Part of your success seems to be how you connect with your audience using Instagram. Do you like it? Honestly, I feel like it's kind of like a mixed bag and it really is just for female entrepreneurs that kind of you see carrying this like double weight as a founder of not wanting to be the whole brand, but also representing the business. And for you and what you've created, it seems like it's been a huge part of success in seeing people just respond to everything from, you know, you putting out thinking about this color versus this one and actually getting their reactions. How have you thought about it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, when I started in 2016, there wasn't this same, there was beginning to be, but there wasn't this same like expectation that if you're a female founder, you should also be a public persona. That came straight from my pathological need for attention. (laughs) 
And so it wasn't like, it wasn't like structured or anything, right? Like I am just like inherently like that kid in class who shares a little too much about themselves and like is a little, as I said, nosy and whatever. And so that was never part of the strategy. That was very natural, right? I presumably was talking to my friends on Instagram. There was no like business case for it. I think it's been interesting as the business has grown to see the impact of my personal social media profiles on the revenue of the business, right? And I think it can be a double-edged sword, certainly, but the like North Star for me is if it starts feeling fake and scripted. And we've never, purposely, we've never kind of turned it in that direction internally, right? I haven't posted on stories in like 24 hours today, which is unusual for me, but like nobody's like, now you were supposed to post ABC on Tuesday. Like there's no schedule for my posts. There's no requirements for me to be doing anything. It's really, I post what I want when I feel like it. And maybe that'll stop working eventually. But for right now, we keep it very separate. And the Hill House account has a very different kind of set of parameters than my personal one does. And I certainly don't expect kind of people to follow both. And I think that's been a really exciting part of the business growth is, you know, walking into our store and somebody asking a question if I'm behind the desk and like having no idea that I'm the founder and like that I'm connected. And like now when I see a nap dress out, I almost always will be like, love your dress. And like very often they won't know that I'm connected in any way to the brand. They'll just think I'm like a creepy lady saying like, I like their dress. So that's also been nice because <laughs> it's not so much me all the time. I want to hear about your relationship with risk. Because most people, when they hear someone's becoming an entrepreneur, there's like this perceived, oh, you must be like a risky person. Carly and I feel like we we made one really risky decision to start the company and that's it. We have to push ourselves to continue to be, I think, risk friendly. How do you think about it? That's really interesting you say that. I mean, I definitely have always described myself as like very risk averse. So I wonder if maybe there are more of us in entrepreneurship like this than than might be expected. I see myself as risk averse. I don't like risks. Like that's why I went into banking. That's why I was like such a intense student. I like to like follow a very, very strict path and like get an A. And entrepreneurship is the exact opposite of that. Not only is there like no one grading you but yourself, but like there's no structure, zero structure. So sometimes I do wonder if like all those old adages about entrepreneurship are true, that it's just like some chip that you like can't get it out of your head. And so you kind of have to, you're like dragged into it. But I think that also because I'm so risk averse, I'm, I'm probably very good at like quantifying, calculating and insulating against risk, which again is something that people would traditionally call anxiety. (laughs) I'm like me too. It just happens in my head all day long. Yeah. 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 So I'm planning for disasters that haven't happened yet and are never going to happen, but you know, it it works. It's helpful in entrepreneurship. I plan for like 12,000 disasters that didn't happen. So we've been fine. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about this, this crazy journey that you've been on, um, you have been critiqued and lauded for showing your lifestyle. And when I say critique, any Google search kind of comes up with privilege. And then at the same time, you speak to it very, you know, you, you started this interview by saying you're privileged. You also have done a phenomenal job of really having a diverse portfolio of people representing the brand in both size, inclusivity, and ethnic racial diversity. In the, it's been eight years since you started the company. Yeah. How has that kind of personal journey evolved for you in being in the spotlight? 
Has it changed? Have you always been comfortable with this amount of scrutiny? Have I always been comfortable with this amount of scrutiny? No, no, I don't think I've always been comfortable with this amount of scrutiny. I don't, uh, but I don't necessarily think I'm comfortable with it now, but um, it's not, I'm not the most important person in the room and my comfort isn't the most important thing in the room. So, you know, the greater vision for the brand is what's really important, which is like delivering these products that people really love and really add value to their lives. And then now there's there's an even bigger one for me, which is this team of 40 people who I absolutely adore and love and like are so incredible and work so hard. Like I'm protecting them and building this business. So I just like, I don't know, I guess that's the crux of it all. Like my comfort is not the most important thing. <laughs> I think it's a good way to think about it, honestly, because it's, you know, being on in, in a different way, being on the other side of it. And we've clearly had had our fair share of critical articles written about us, it is kind of helpful to put it in that perspective. You just did a partnership with Net-A-Porter. Talk to me about the evolution on the business side of where you want this to grow and the trends you see in retail. Yeah, I'm really excited about distribution. We've had such tremendous growth on our own channels over the past few years, in the past four years in particular. And I really think the next kind of revenue targets for us are going to happen through real... Oh, hang on. Here's my son. Sorry, Henry. I'm on a call right now, honey. Okay, I love you. Love you so much. Bye. <laughs> um, this is the problem with working from home. Mine are napping right now. <laughs> Um, I think that distribution is really the next kind of thing that will get us from a kind of business growth perspective. And then just from an access perspective, like, again, going back to that North Star of like, what's our vision? What do we actually want? And it's getting the product in more people's hands. We don't see ourselves kind of back to what I was saying earlier. Direct to consumer and like e-commerce are not the only models that are going to be replacing everything, right? People have been talking about like the death of brick and mortar forever at this point. I'm reading this book now by Jack Mitchell, Hug Your Customer. And he is like the most amazing guy. I love reading this book, but he's talking about like 20 years ago being at a conference and everyone's like, and retail is dead. And I'm like, oh, we just keep saying this. Like everybody just constantly says it. And I think, again, it's this like outsized sense of importance that many D2C brands like have about themselves. I'm really actively trying to like take the warnings of some of that kind of mentality and and say like, you know, I just want to meet people and introduce them to our product and I don't really care where it is, right? If it's through a great wholesaler, great. If it's in our store, great. The product is the thing and I would love to get product in more people's hands and through channels that I think are obviously values aligned and vision aligned. But whether it's in person, online, at a department store, on somebody else's site, I really want it to work for the customer as opposed to just work for us, the business. I want to get to a listener question from Jacqueline, who wants to know, what's the most challenging part of leading a team for you? And what resources have you used to grow as a manager and as an executive? The most challenging thing about leading a team is the like very clear understanding that you are responsible for other people's livelihoods. And I will never, ever, ever take that for granted. Like, you know, other people's 401ks and insurance and payroll, I am responsible for that. And at the end of the day, it's like captain goes down with the ship, like that's so important. And that's really hard. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I made that bargain when I started the brand and I did resist it. You know, we were a really small team for a very long time. And I remember when we hired like our first kind of like more senior employee and the first person who had kids like me, 
it was really difficult for me emotionally because I just felt so much responsibility. But I think that's good. I think it's good to have that pressure because I think more business leaders need to understand that that they're responsible for people's livelihoods yeah. and keep that with them every day. Um, and then things I've, I've leaned on like therapy, just like hugely. I'm a huge advocate of a therapy practice. I personally see my therapist once a week. I see her on Mondays. And then I have a couple kind of different types of like executive coaches. I work with Dr. Akila Kadeh on a pretty frequent basis as a coach, an executive coach. Yeah, I think like continuing to like ask questions and talk to other people in the field, all of those things, keep being curious. What are some companies or brands that you're excited about? So many. I mentioned Abercrombie. I really love what they're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's so exciting. I love the brand Ceremonia. Um, it's a hair care brand. I just got some of their product and I'm just obsessed with it. It's so good for the hair. I love the business Like to Know It. I think that's super interesting. I'm obsessed. Yeah. I love brands. I'm a brand girl. How does one correctly wear the bow that you guys make? All of them? Well, just because I, I think I've told you about this for anyone listening at home. I really love the bow look, but I feel like do you do it with a hairband or do you have the bow barrette be the, the hairband? Well, it depends on the look you want. It depends on the look okay. you want. There are so many different ways to do it. Like for a looser look, you just use, we have we have quite a few different types of bows, but they all have like a barrette clasp, right? So for like a looser kind of more like boho-y, like undone look, then just the clasp and it's supposed to be a little flowy and, you know, not perfect. But if you want like a perfect updo, I think you got to use like elastic and hairpins and all those things and then put the bow on top of that. On top. Okay. That was my most important question. Um, <laughs> last one. Last one for today. Who is someone else we should have on the show? You should have Baba, who founded Ceremonia, or Cami Tellez from Parade. Both of them. They're awesome. Okay. Well, we will follow up. Nell, congrats on everything. I would be really excited if you did an airplane outfit drop. I'm putting that out there. <laughs> and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>